Podcastle, episode 135, for December 14th, 2010, California King, by Michael J. Jasper and Greg Van Eekout, rated R for violence, language, drug use, and also me singing. Sorry. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is California King by Michael J. Jasper and Greg Van Eekhout. It originally appeared in Asimov's science fiction magazine in spring of 2005. After reading today's story, I found myself thinking about royalty, a line of thought aided in no small part by the fact that Prince William's engagement to commoner Kate Middleton means that even us rebels across the pond are already suffering the interminable media blitz that surrounds every fairy tale wedding. Now, kids, I'm old enough to remember the interminable media blitz surrounding the last one. And to be honest, I bought into it whole hog. I was young, romantic, and enamored with the large ideals that the nobles seemed to represent. Self-sacrifice, generosity of spirit, and strength in times of crisis. Well, we all know how that first fairy tale wedding turned out, and the next one, for that matter, underscoring the lack of all those noble ideals. And the House of Windsor continues to disappoint, even to this day. I mean, take curtsies, for example. Do you have any idea how much agita these people work up over curtsies? You don't want to know, but I'm going to tell you anyway. At this moment, with Kate and William merely affianced, Kate has to curtsy to absolutely everyone. Even the daughters of the Duke of Gloucester. Can you imagine the daughters of the Duke of Gloucester? Once they're married, however, things get more interesting. For starters, who curtsies to whom in the royal family is largely dependent on whether the royal menfolk are present or not. So, let's say William is in the room, and Sarah Ferguson and her daughters, Beatrice and Eugenie, and let's also say the daughters of the Duke of Gloucester are there, damn them. However, let's say William is not in the room. He's off shooting a moose in Scotland or something. Well, then the La Bouton is on the other tootsie, and our poor common little Kate has got some knee to bend. It's just ridiculous, right? Now listen, it gets worse. Apparently, most of the senior royals don't intend to curtsy to Kate under any circumstances, married or not, William off shooting moose or not. They're going to follow the precedent set by Princess Anne, Prince Charles's sister, come on people, keep up, who absolutely refuses to curtsy to Camilla, Duchess of Cornwall, just as she refused to curtsy to Princess Diana because both women were commoners. Now, in the good old days, such stubbornness might rightly be viewed as les majesté and earn its perpetrator a swift trip to the tower. Instead, when this scandal broke back in 2005, the Queen took Anne's side and basically rewrote the rules of protocol to downgrade Camilla's place in the royal pecking order. And because the Queen rewrote the rules for Anne, now all the other royals are demanding the same privilege, that is, the privilege not to have to curtsy to Kate, whether William is in the room or not. Now... There's no curtsying in today's story, thank God. But there is self-sacrifice, generosity of spirit, and strength in times of crisis, not to mention real nobility, which I think you'll find a pleasant antidote to all the small-minded pettiness I've just subjected you to. Michael J. Jasper writes stories, novels, and comics. He's sold over four dozen short stories to places such as Asimov's, Strange Horizons, Polyphony, Writers of the Future, Interzone, and other fine venues. His most recent novel is A Gathering of Doorways, which appeared in 2009 from Prime Books. 
He's currently writing a digital comic available for smartphones, iPads, Kindles, Nooks, computers, and just about any other device where you can look at images and read words. See michaeljasper.net for more information. Greg Van Eekhout's short fiction has appeared in places such as Asimov's, FNSF, Strange Horizons, and several year's best collections. His published novels are the mythical contemporary fantasy Norse Code and the middle-grade humorous fantasy Kid vs. Squid. Forthcoming novels are the middle-grade post-apocalyptical The Boy at the End of the World and a fantasy trilogy based on his short story The Osteomancer's Son. More info about Greg and his writing stuff can be found at writingandsnacks, and that's all one word, dot com. The story is read by Dave Thompson, one of your esteemed Podcastle editors. He says that I shouldn't bother saying too much about him, so I won't, except to say that I'd happily curtsy to him, even if Prince William wasn't in the room. So there. Enjoy the story. California King by Michael J. Jasper and Greg Van Eekout. Our hero, a scrawny, bristle-haired man, softly sings a song he wrote when he was 15 as he gives himself a new tattoo. He no longer remembers the verses, but the chorus goes something like, Nah, nah, fuck, fuck, I'm the king. Nah, nah, fuck, fuck. Even after all these years, he finds the hook sort of catchy. His raspy tenor smooths and deepens as he embeds dozens of carefully spaced puncture wounds into his skinny right arm with his long, sharp knife, stealing the voice of the unconscious man upon whom he sits. This will not be a big tattoo, we realize, for the real estate on our hero's right arm has become quite crowded. Someday, soon, he'll have to move on to his unmarked left. As he rubs a hanky soaked with berry dye and coal dust into the bloody dots, we watch a thin line of red trickle from the mouth of the motionless, waxy-skinned man beneath him. We see the scuffs and the ruined soles of our hero's black boots, so recently applied against the skull of the man under him. But what we cannot see is what his new tattoo will be. At least, not yet. We call this man, our hero, the California King. He is blonde, of course, bleach blonde from the sun and the surf, his hair standing in stiff tufts. Rail thin and muscular as a whippet, our hero smiles with sharp white teeth as he rubs the dye from his self-inflicted wounds. He has finally caught his breath from his battle with the man under him. We inch closer now to steal a glimpse of the tattoo in progress, and we are not surprised to see that the king has taken the greatest asset of his foe, who is better known as the Calling Man, and cut it into his arm in the shape of a mouth pursed and a treble cleft kiss. The calling man will never speak again, at least not the girls under 18 who answer the phone while their mothers work second shift. Around the king rises a world of ten-story apartment buildings, giant waffle iron edifices surrounding a maze of clotheslines, projects they call them, and the king thinks of himself as a project too, every step of which is recorded in ink and scar tissue on his legs, his torso, his right arm. He looks around. Whitey tidies sag in the damp air. The California king has nothing against Oregon, or for that matter, any parts northeast or south of his homeland, but he misses his own deserts and beaches and slums and sparkly hillsides. He leans over and reaches for his battered blue suitcase, sets it on his lap and retrieves the roll of gauze. After wrapping a quick dressing around his arm, Puts away his die and slips the knife in his belt sheath. 
looking away and blinking his faded blue eyes at the big communal lawn stretching out in front of him, broken only by ugly red brick buildings. The king sighs. Because his vision is better than perfect, better than 2010, he drank a lot of organic carrot juice in his homeland. He is able to see what's really happening behind those TV blued out windows. He sees the pain and the sorrow of lives misspent here in the Burnside neighborhood of Portland. The man underneath him starts to shift and move like too many books stacked on a sloping hallway when a trilling sound fills the air. At first, the king thinks it's the calling man's cell phone, but that can't be, as it's less a cell phone now than a loose collection of cell phone parts on the sidewalk next to him. And then he realizes it's his own phone. Fuck, he mutters, digging into his suitcase. He was hoping for an hour or two to wander around Powell's, read a couple of books in the aisles, maybe get a cup of coffee. He finds his phone and hits talk. We can only hope that the king doesn't slip away before we buy him that coffee and at least offer him the shelter of our umbrella because the chilly spring rains look like they're about to begin again. But we know we can't interrupt him, this man, the king of California, with his unrelenting momentum. We step back to a safe distance, watching and wishing the king well. The voice on the phone is a cheese grater rasp that usually comes from a seven-pack-a-day habit, which is kind of funny because Jonah never smokes. Jonah never frequents restaurants with smoking sections. Jonah is so afraid of secondhand smoke that he hasn't left his apartment in seven years. He's not what you might call a man of action. For action, he uses the king. How's Oregon? Jonah says. Lovely. I'll get you a postcard at the Greyhound station. Beneath him, his defeated opponent tries to roll over, and the king decides to get some distance before he wakes up entirely. He stands, grabs his suitcase, lets his skinny legs take him toward the playground on the other side of the common lawn. The merry-go-round spins, blown by bone-chilling wind. The hung-out laundry flaps in the cold, soaking up more moisture. Give me one with a volcano on it, Jonah says. But first, there's something I need you to do. The king bites his tongue. Someday, he will have paid his debt in full to Jonah, and on that day, he'll pay his boss a visit. He's not yet sure what it'll take from Jonah, but he knows it'll be something Jonah's sure to miss, like the calling man will miss his voice. Maybe he'll take a nice memory from Jonah's childhood and carve it into his left arm. Maybe all his nice memories. But that will have to wait. For the time being, Jonah owns the king. I need you to go down to the Grey House station. I just said that was where I'm going. I know, don't interrupt. What I need you to do is go down to the Greyhound station. There's a thing there. The thing is getting on a bus. Thing? There's a thing? Can you be a little more specific about this thing? He keeps walking under the slate gray skies. He wishes someone would parole the sun. It's a thing, Jonah croaks. You'll have to find it, and you'll have to determine what kind of thing it is. And above all, don't let it come south. Keep it from the homelands. Do not let it cross the border into California. By Jonah's standards, these are painfully explicit instructions. One job a couple weeks back, all the king knew going in was that he needed to kill a hulking dark green something or other turned out to be a necromantic construct in a Green Bay Packers jersey. His boss's scrying skills aren't what they used to be. 
This isn't a little job, Jonah says. It's a task, one of the big ones. Understand? Frankly, I don't think you're up to it, but, well, you're all we've got. Thanks for the vote of confidence, the king says. Makes me feel all toasty inside. He thumbs end and the phone goes silent. He turns back and in the distance he sees the calling man lumbered to his feet like a wounded walrus, clutching his throat. The king smiles. Some justice has been done. A little bit. But the communal lawn is still brown and patchy, and the pain behind the apartment windows hasn't diminished. And he can see a drug deal going down in the shadows between the buildings. And somewhere in a dirty bathroom, a 14-year-old girl is discovering she's pregnant. But the king can't solve everybody's problems for them. The king's got to gear up for a fight. The king has got to move. The bus station is a cinderblock box with booger-colored floor tiles. The hard wire mesh chairs in the waiting area are filled with people who can't afford to fly. Some students with huge backpacks and guitar cases. Young moms with dark circles under their eyes trying to keep their kids quiet or amused. Bone-shrunken old ladies. Paroled convicts. My people, the king whispers, his heart swelling with love. The sense of constantly being watched is diminished, and here the king feels himself click into place, like a deadbolt securing a door. He circles the interior of the station, prying into the eyes of all those inside it, yet nobody gives him a hint of any ill intentions. No thing, as Jonah would call it. Starting a second rotation of the crowded bus station, he doesn't see the little boy next to him until his boots catch on something small, and he pulls back, overcompensating. The king hits the ground and rolls, favoring his still-stinging right arm. His two daggers are out and in front of him before he can lift his gaze. When he does, he sees that he's been taken down by a toe-headed boy of barely four years and an orange Elmo Loves Me t-shirt. The knives disappear. Owie! Yeah, sorry about that, kid, but you tripped me. No, the kid insists, pointing. Owie! On your arm! Tell me about it, kid, the king says, positioning himself so he's squatting with his back against the cool, flim-colored tiles of the station wall. One day, I'm going to grow up and go to tattoo school. What's that one? A finger the width of a crayon pokes the king's triceps, just above his freshly applied bandage. The king sighs, still watching every green inch of the station. Where's your mama, big guy? No, no, no. What's that one? The king scans the bus station one final time, slowly, ignoring the grubby finger poking him. No sign of any sort of thing. He gently, firmly pulls the kid's finger out of his arm. That one, he says, his voice softening the tiniest bit, is a feather. I drew it after I saved ten kids like you from a bad woman who was trying to teach them to fly down in Sacramento. Ladies don't fly, the kid says in an irritated voice. Neither do kids, buddy. The little boy's eyes are already searching for other objects carved into the king's arm. What's that? Owie, that's a cross from a priest. I don't want to talk about that one anymore. What's that? Listen, the king hisses, but he's interrupted by a boarding call announcement barely comprehensible, coming as it does from the old dusty speakers. The bus to the homeland is about to depart. He needs to leave, but he still hasn't found Jonah's thing. Unless... Kid, where'd you say your mom was? 
What's that one, mister? Tell me. No, the king thinks not this. No kids. Kids are off limits. No matter what happens, the king will not hurt a kid, even if the kid grows six heads and spits venom. Not a kid. Seven heads, though. This one? The king looks down at his tattooed arm where the blood from the musical mouth is soaked through the gauze. But the kid is pointing at something else. A pair of ballet slippers. That's from someone I used to know. She sold her soul to the devil to make the monster dance, so she wouldn't have to anymore. The kid pushes his finger into his arm a tiny bit deeper. Do you know anything about making deals with the devil, kid? Do you? The little boy looks up at the king for the first time since tripping him. His eyes are wide as saucers, blue as Monterey Bay. You're a freaky cupcake, mister. The king is going for his knives when the kid says this. Then his hands relax and he straightens. Innocent. Tell me about it, the king says, swallowing so hard his eyes water. Damn you, Jonah, he thinks. Got me jumping at shadows. At kids. The king tossles the boy's hair, and the boy looks at him frankly. I'm going to go pee now. Bathroom's the best place for that, the king says, and he watches the boy skip away. Then the king slips out of the bus station and approaches an L.A.-bound bus. He enters the bus and walks unnoticed past the driver. All transports into his kingdom are free. It was all a ruse, he decides, adjusting his daggers before he drops onto a seat at the back of the bus. Jonah's way of flexing his muscles. Just like sending the king up to damn Oregon for the day was a power play. All to do what? Steal the voice of some long-distance child molester? Surely there were better things for the king of California to do than that. Unless... The king leans back against the musty-smelling seat. It will be good, he decides, to get Portland behind him. Then there's a smell of mothballs and cigarettes, and a man of nearly a dozen decades lowers himself interminably into the seat next to the king. His linen suit is the yellow of rancid butter. Suit's taken, the king mumbles, still staring out the window. Sure is, the old man says, voice soft like a hiccup. Taken by me. The king lifts his eyelids, which had somehow drifted shut on him, and turns his head. He blinks what feels like cigarette ash out of his eyes. His new seatmate has already made himself at home. On his lap is a small black case filled with needles, a lighter, and a pair of spoons. The insides of the king's elbows itch with old hungers. His heart hammers. His mouth goes dry. The toothless old man smiles as he ties a rubber band around his skinny yellowed arm. Want to get high? He says, tapping the inside of his own elbow with a clawed pair of fingers. The roar of the bus engine as they pull away from the Greyhound station drowns out any hope of an immediate answer. Good to see you again, the king says as soon as he is able. Dad. Funny, says the old man. The king doesn't really want to have a conversation with the old man, but he feels words forming on his lips, and he can't stop them. It's like falling. Once you start, hitting the ground is all you've got to look forward to. What's funny, he says, and winces. To ask information from a person is to give that person power. What's funny, Dad? I just think it's funny how I started you out with so many gifts, and you're still such a zero. The king looks back out the window at the blur of trees and bruised skies. That won't work, he says. My self-esteem is just fine and the ravings of my junkie father aren't likely to knock it down much.
Illusion, the old man says. Again, the sense of falling. The king looks away at the other passengers and glimpses what could be an orange Elmo t-shirt at the front of the bus. He just wants to get up and change his seat, get away from the old man, but instead he remains where he is. What's an illusion, he asks helplessly. Wrong question. Not what, but how. Look at me. The king turns his head. There's no longer a rubber band around his father's arm. Now it's just a blood pressure cuff, and the black box of spoons and needles is a cardboard tray from the bus station cafeteria, bearing a meatball sandwich. His father squeezes the bladder of the blood pressure cuff. Fush, fush. Illusion, see, is something you can't do. The tattoo thing? That's good. That's real clever. But there's so much more I could teach you. Don't talk to him, the king silently urges himself. Don't open the wounds. Don't give the old man what he wants. But the words are going to spill out. There's no stopping it now. So he reshapes them. Hey, pops, your gonorrhea ever clear up? The old man reaches out, finger and thumb pinched together, and the king's head snaps back. A red burst of pain flares across his cheek. Nobody else on the bus seems to notice. The other passengers just stare straight ahead. Tall pines flicker past the windows. Mind how you talk to your father, the old man says mildly. I'm here to help you. The king rubs his cheek with one hand. The other moves closer to one of his knives. I don't need your kind of help. But you so very much do, the old man says. You have no idea what you're dealing with, Alex. Don't call me that. Why not? It's your name. I gave it to you. The night you were born, I took you out to meet the night. The star-filled sky spun like a great big turntable, and I lifted you high and you scratched the sky like a record needle. When I heard the music you made, I gave you your name. Alexander, the name of a conqueror. And then you walked away, the king says. You have no hold on me. You pawned your crown and you smell like piss and there's nothing I want from you and nothing you can do for me. So why don't you get the fuck lost before I tattoo your eyes on my arm? Wake up, boy. And the king does, snapping alert in a panic. How could he have fallen asleep? How long had he been out? The old man's turtle mouth curves in a smile. He leans his head back against the seat, his skin the color of lemonade. Look outside, Alex. And the king does. Outside the window is a dead land. The mountains are just mounds of charred dirt studded with blackened skeletal trees. Ash falls like snow from the gray sky. And as far as the king can see, which, remember, is very, very far, rubber stamp houses huddle like refugees far into the distance. The houses aren't burned, they're just dead. Every one of them is the same cold and gray with blank windows shut to the world. Ah, it's been too long, the old man says with a sigh. California, here we are. It's good to be home. We catch up to them here, at the northern reaches of the king's homeland. The bus wasn't supposed to stop here. We have the schedule in our hands, and it says nothing about stopping at Ash City, California. Population none. Out of breath and gut sore, we taste the burnt lives of what used to be a sunny row of houses, and we watch the door of the bus, waiting for our hero to emerge, waiting for the king to make his triumphant return home. 
Soon the ash will turn to golden butterflies, probably, and the drab paint will fall from the houses like scales from a row of eyes. We wait, breathless, for the king. We hope. There's a scrape of metal, and then the king is out one of the emergency window exits. Always with the grand entrances and grand exits, we add as he drops out of the bus onto the ashy ground. With a soft thump, he breathes from his mouth, his bright white teeth whistling with a rush of air in and out. How long have I been gone, he whispers. A rattle of bones and another soft thump mixed with something wet. The old man in the white suit has fallen from the bus, his knee crushing his meatball sandwich into the ash. Years, the old man wheezes. You don't remember? We see the dead look creep into our hero's eyes as the reality of the barren kingdom settles into his soul. The crushed look on his face is reminiscent of a crumpled body that has finally met the earth after a long, long fall. We have seen such things, the sort of things people like you only see from the corner of your eyes. We see them head on. I need to get back, the king says, even as he sinks to his knees in the desert of dust and ash. Dead gray matter from the ground puffs onto his green, sleeveless t-shirt. Back to Culver City in the old neighborhood. Son, you are back. The old man reaches for the king, but his hand never touches the king's unscarred left arm. With a series of hisses like air and a handful of syringes, the old man fades into the ashy ground, and we wonder if he had ever been there in the first place. Your kingdom awaits, the old man's disembodied voice calls out, drifting over to us from our prescribed safe viewing distance. But your throne holds another's weight. The instant the old man's last word is spoken, three seemingly unrelated events occur simultaneously. Tucked into the hip pocket of the California king's jeans, the all-important cell phone begins to trill. A red and gold tattoo on the right arm of the California king bursts into flame, and slicing northward like the trail of a scalpel, a black crack opens underneath the feet of the California king. In the arrhythmic heartbeat instant that follows, we all sigh and hope this time he stays here for good. The king hits the ground hard, rolling away from the widening fissure, and he hears the sound of bones breaking. Big, giant bones, thick as sequoias. The flames on his arm go out, but not before turning his flesh into a red, bloody, blistering mess. He regains his feet and hits the talk button on the phone. What? He screams, feeling the earth sway beneath his feet. Nice going, fuck up, says the voice on the other end. You let the thing cross the border. It's Jonah. What thing? If you know what it is, you better fucking tell me, Jonah, or I swear on my mother's grave, I'll tattoo your whole fucking life on my chest. There's a shrieking sound now, the biggest fingernails in the world scraping against the biggest chalkboard. The king gets the sense that it's coming from beneath him, that it's coming from the fissure. You saw the thing, dumbass, Jonah says. You rode the bus with it. Hello, are you on drugs or are you just stupid? The king closes his eyes. He wishes he could blame it on drugs, but no. This time, stupidity is the culprit. Dad, he says. Your father, yes. Wasn't that obvious? He's been trying to reclaim his throne since you first banished him. And now a scrabbling sound, very close. Whatever's coming up from the fissure is almost here now. I banished him? Hey, I never banished anyone. He left me. 
The new replaces the old, Jonah says, clearly exasperated. It's the California way. Look, isn't there something better you could be doing with your time than picking at this father-son scab? The thing is almost arisen. You'll have to fight it unless you want the rest of the state turning to ash. The king scans the dead city around him and is surprised to see that there are, after all, residents here. He watches gray people taking out the trash, getting into gray cars, maybe heading off to work or going shopping. Gray kids ride their skateboards. Every street terminates in a cul-de-sac, a polite word for a dead end. He won't let the rest of his realm be turned to this. He unsheathes one of his knives and has himself a good laugh over how pathetic it seems in the face of what's coming up from the earth. Got any tips for me, Jonah? A good cheat code or two? Kid, just be the king, Jonah says, a trace of sympathy in his voice. They're all rooting for you. Hopes and dreams of the people on your shoulders. All that shit. Just do your best. A pause. Actually, do a little better than your best. And the line goes dead. The king pockets the phone and unsheathes his second knife. He squares his bony shoulders and faces the fissure. A hand emerges from it. Then another. They're yellow, gray-veined, blistered. His father's hands. He watches the old man pull himself from the cracked earth and rise to his feet. Like gunfighters, they stare at one another until the king says, What the fuck are you looking at? Wrong question, the old man says, more relevant. What the fuck are you looking at? And suddenly the old man is no longer an old man. Now he is decidedly a thing. He's a towering, mountainous thing, his flesh made of redwood tree bark with some gray patches of concrete slathered with graffiti. Up in smoke, his belly reads, in red and blue spray paint. His dome head is topped with thick white glacial ice, and ropes of kelp hang from his shoulders, dripping. Dying fish flop in the tangles. In his eyes dance glittering city lights, and as he moves, the ground shudders beneath his feet. Yellow desert sand falls from his huge, pierced dick. And then, he's just the old man again. But when he speaks, he speaks with the voice of the king's entire kingdom. The ocean, the wind, the screaming of babies, the river rush of freeway traffic. All of it. And this is what he says. You are overthrown, he says. And the baby's screams go silent. You are exiled, he says. And the whoosh of the freeway chokes and dies. You are old, he says and the wind and the ocean fall silent. The only way the king is able to keep his feet throughout the oral assault of the thing that once was his father is through pure genetic stubbornness. Though in his ears he feels the sharp tinnitus stab of an overcooked amp, knocking his equilibrium out of whack, the king only staggers back a total of three steps, one for each dire proclamation of the father thing. Damaged eardrums and all, he can still hear his father's voice repeating his mantra. Overthrown. Exiled. Old. The king's knives lift up, flashing in the dull light of this dead suburb. The needle tips of the blades point at his father, who has begun to shimmer in front of him. The creature who was once his father is having trouble maintaining his human shape for more than a few seconds at a time. One second, the knives are pointed at the chicken neck of an old man, the next, they're aimed at the chunk of concrete growing out of the thing's redwood belly. Up in smoke, the king mutters, though all he hears is his own blood in his ears. 
He hopes dear old dad has heard him. If not, he decides he can let the knives finish the conversation for him. The shifting between man and thing speeds up until the two beings become indistinguishable. Foul-smelling ash fills the air, blinding the king momentarily. Damn it all, he thinks. Deaf and now blind. I truly suck in a fight anymore. When his eyes clear instead of the red wood and concrete beast he's expecting, the king is face to face with his ancient father once again. Playing with me, the king realizes, yanking me around like he used to when I was five and pissing in my pants to see him on the one or two days a year he'd drop by our shitty apartment. No more! The king drops his knives into the ash where they stick and quiver. The old man doesn't deserve that clean of a death. The king wants to feel his own hands on the old man's flesh as the bastard takes his last breath. Come on, the king says, though we can only hear his words faintly through his abused eardrums. I don't know what sort of deal you made when you were away all these years, but I'm sure you and Jonah have had this day planned for a while. So come on, Dad, let's do our Luke and Vader scene right now. His father only smiles. He's frail, a walking skeleton held together by yellow skin and stubborn sinew. He shakes his head like a teacher disappointed by an underachieving student. Oh no, son. It's not like that at all. The king is able to hear the old man clearly now, despite the rush of blood inside his head. You slept for too long. You allowed your attention to wander and you forgot the needs of your kingdom. I mean, really, look at the state of things. Urban sprawl, poisoned air, drive-by shootings, reality television? Now tell me, my boy, what king allows something like that to happen to his homeland? As his father talks, the king slaps at a sudden throbbing on his arm. He takes a furtive glance down at the collection of ink scars and tats and squints at the place where the oldest of his etchings once resided. Safety pins and India ink. He didn't know what he was doing back then, and it's been so long he can't remember what the tattoo once was. All that remains is a pink and black blister, a burnt carbon and cotton candy color design that makes him think of afterbirth of new life created through an instant of suffering. But that's impossible. Unless... No, the California king says, his plea falling silent and toneless inside his swirling head. That's right, the old man says. He nods his bald head at something behind the king as if acknowledging a long-awaited delivery. It takes all of his energy to turn, but after what feels like years, the California king is able to see what... Who the old man is looking at. Welcome home, a tiny voice says to the king. In an orange Elmo Loves Me t-shirt, he's a tow-headed boy of barely four years. He looks up at the king with eyes like mirrors. The king wants badly to pick up his knives, but his brain and his body are no longer on speaking terms. With a tardy flash of insight, he recalls what the melted tattoo was, his first ever creation, a tiny gold crown encrusted with blood rubies. Now I'm going to have to ask you to leave, the boy continues, and then pauses for a painful, dramatic, and, dare we say it, pregnant second before delivering the knockout punch. Got that, Dad? Indeed, the king gets it. Head in his hands, he assumes a lotus position upon the cracked earth. Jonah's been jerking him around for months on end while he prepared his own horse, the king's son for the crown. He kept the boy outside California to avoid undue notice, and then, 
When the time was right, he sent the king up to Oregon to retrieve the boy. Jonah's pretty smart. He used the old man as a distraction and tricked the king into escorting the boy, the king's own rival, across the border to his kingdom. The California king has to hand it to Jonah. This is simply what he deserves for trying to play poker with one of the East Coast kings. He lifts his head and finds himself staring into the chillingly blank gaze of his son. Then he turns to his own father. And what do you get out of this? When the kid becomes king, you're no better off than when I took the job. That's not true, the old man says. Enmity skips generations. We're going to be best buddies, your boy and me. It would comfort the king to think that the old man was lying, that he'll abandon his grandson just as easily as he did his son. But there's a bit of truth in the old man's words. The old man might even come to genuinely love the boy as grandfathers are wont to do. And then, he'd be the one training the new king, training him in his own image. The king rises to his weary legs. He dusts off the knees of his jeans and runs a hand through his hair. Okay, he says with a sigh. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for you to leave, the boy says. But I'm not going. The old man tisks and wags his gnarled index finger. There can only be one king, Alex. You took my crown, and now it's time to pass it on to the boy you escorted across the border. Unless, the old man says, you're planning on murdering your own son. Nope, he's king now. Simple as that. The king is tired. Long live the king. Nah, nah, fuck, fuck. Alex bows to his son. But I'm not leaving. The boy shrugs, already a deadpanning cynic at the age of four. Then I'll have to kill you. I know, Alex says, but that'll have to wait till you're big enough to reach the grown-up urinal. When your granddad figured out I was big enough to take him out about the time when I was six, he jumped ship and left me to fend for myself. But you and me, we're going to do things a little differently. What are you talking about? Says the old man. There's concern, even fear in his yellow billard ball eyes. I'm not leaving my son, Alex says. He inhales dust and then everything comes clear for him. Clearer than anything has been in years. No, he says. I'm going to Tom Joad this boy. Wherever a bunch of cops are beating the crap out of a black guy, I'll be there. Wherever a coyote is leaving a bunch of illegals for dead in the desert, I'll be there. And I'll be there with my son, the king. And I'll be trying to help him fix it. Most of the time, we probably won't make anything better. Not a lot of king can do sometimes. But hey, into the mosh, no matter what happens. Right, son? The boy wipes his nose on the collar of his Elmo t-shirt. When I get big enough, I'm going to kill you. Chip off the old block, Alex says. But first, Highness, we're left with a little bit of unfinished business. He turns to face the old man. We are all here, watching. We gather around, ash on our clothes and wonder in our eyes. The big showdown, at last. We hold our collective breaths, amazed to be witnessing three generations of California kings gathered here on this day, decades of bad blood in the air, thick enough to chew. Our hero turns his back on his boy. Who knew, we keep asking each other, who knew the king had a son? and walks between his pair of knives still poking out of the ash-ridden ground. The old man backs up a step, 
though we can tell he doesn't want to. It's an ancient fear, the son rising up to smite the father. The old man speaks first. Who's going to stop me from killing you both? Not me. Our hero's voice is so soft we must lean closer to hear it. I won't raise a finger against you, Dad. Then heed me, or I swear I will kill you. The old man lifts bony arms as if trying to shift his demon's body again, but all he can manage now is a piece of kelp dangling from one hairy ear. You didn't let me finish, damn it. Alex covers his son's ear an instant too late. The boy pulls away from him at first, then inches closer. I won't fight you, Dad. I'm through with windmill tilting. Tell Jonah that for me if you like. No, I'm taking my boy on a walking tour of his kingdom, and they won't let you touch us. The old man bursts into nervous laughter. <laughs> Who's this they? We're the only ones here, Zero. He lowers his arm and kicks at the ash on the ground. You've spent too much time in the sun, using dirty knives to cut tattoos into your arms. There's nobody to help you and my king. You've got to fight me. Kill me if you can. And then the bottom drops out. Our hero, our king, we can't bring ourselves to call him Alex, paces in a slow circle. As he turns, he points at each and every one of us. It takes him a good minute to do so, and in that time, everything we have ever known changes. I think these fine folks gathered here would beg to differ. No, we want to scream. We did as we'd been told. We kept the safe prescribed viewing distances. We'd followed him, yes, we admit that, but only after ensuring he was far enough ahead of us. He never should have known we were here. My fan club, our king says. His face lights up now, as if overjoyed at finally getting to share the secret at last. He laughs loud enough to shake the earth. Caught, we can only do one thing. We move closer, as one. The king, our king, looks at his father. You're going to have to deal with them on your own, Dad. We move even closer now to the three kings of California. Our eyes slip past our hero and focus on the old man, a faded king who ruled a different kingdom in a different age. We all sigh and know that this time it is up to us whether our hero stays here for good. We fall upon the oldest of the kings and cover him like a hot desert wind. I take my boy's hand. It's slightly sticky with a mix of old chocolate and sweat, but its grip is strong. I never should have left him and his mother those four years ago. But back then, my kingdom was large and new to me, and the highways beckoned. And back then, I believed that one little duplex on the shit end of Culver City did not a kingly castle make. I lead him away from the screams behind us. We pass by my knives, and I think about plucking them from the ground and starting a new tattoo on my left arm. But I leave them and give my son a sidelong look instead. The new king is otherwise preoccupied. With eyes open wide, he looks at the glorious expanse of his kingdom unfurling in front of us. Already the ash is beginning to shift as tufts of grass force their way to the surface. Which way, I whisper, my king? He answers with only a finger pointing south. Still pointing, he squeezes my hand tighter, and we start to walk.
And welcome back. It's no secret that I'm a fan of superhero stories, and yet I do believe this is the first one Anna and I have actually bought here for Podcastle. But one of the things that really grabbed me about this story, aside from the California King's awesome theme song, I mean, was the way it invokes not only the heroes, but the people to take action, to not be complacent, to bear witness to the injustices in the land, to testify. And I'm down with any superhero who calls out the Empire Strikes Back and Tom Joad within a few sentences. Seriously, I know we've got Matt Murdock and somewhere you can see Hal Jordan and Oliver Queen driving across America, but I want to fire up the signal for more socially justice-minded punk rock superheroes, more super goat mans, more California kings. Because in the end, it's our story too. We have an impact on it. We can make a difference. And the superheroes are just as much along for the ride as we are. Okay, feedback for this week is for Viler Kafton's Something Wicked This Way Plums, read by Ellie Hirschman. A story about tentacles trick-or-treating for kitties. It was <laughs> maybe a lot lighter than I just made it out to be. And in addition to Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death, Something Wicked This Way Plums rounded out Halloween month for us at Podcastle. Generally, people seem to be pleased to have a fun story at the end of October. A.C. Proct said, Thank you so much for an episode that explored the fun, playful side of Halloween. It was a great break from all the other podcasts in October that seemed to be dedicating to scaring the ever-loving crap out of me. Woodchuck said, I do like the funny horror stories, and the way it was introduced as a flashback helps add to the enjoyment. Because you know the main character is okay. They've survived to tell the tale. I think everyone works with someone like Dana, the kind of person you really don't mind being around, but at times, you wonder what really makes them tick. And Aussie Cat asked the immortal question, still wondering, where did the candy come from? And why do I think I don't want to know? Speaking of Aussie Cat, say hello to him because he's one of our two new Super Forum moderators over at Podcastle. The other is the amazing Talia. Together, they will rule the galaxy, or at least the Podcastle Forum, which you can visit at forum.escapeartist.net and tell us what you thought about this story. If you like what we're doing, please consider dropping by podcastle.org and making a donation. All your money goes to keeping our authors paid and our Podcastle running, lest we be forced to make a living off my singing instead, which, in other words, means we'd all die. So if you can help us out a little, thanks. It means a lot to us, and it means a lot to our audience, too, I'm sure. That's all for this week. On behalf of the great Anne Leckie, the fantastic co-editor M.K. Hobson, the amazing Peter Wood, the spectacular Anna Schwind, and myself, the less-than-uncanny Dave Thompson, we at Podcastle want to thank you for letting us here share another story with you. We'll be back next week with a special Christmas gift for you all to unwrap in the form of a mummy when Heather Shaw and Tim Pratt drop by for the holidays. Until then, into the mosh, my friends, and we'll see you all next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site.
Dr. Seuss said, Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not.